I don't know how the new year hits for each of you, if it's like, oh, here we go again, or if it's uh, an incredible excitement and enthusiasm, if you're people who are like, oh, it's a new beginning and I can start all fresh and turn over a new leaf, or what you do. But there is a sense of, of new beginnings, of newness about a new year. So we're excited to be together, excited for what's ahead. I missed being here last week. I was planning to be here. We were in Vancouver, but we had gone to Calgary for Christmas to visit family, and inevitably, Wesley and I both got sick, so we were very sick. Um, so missed being here last week, but I know that Pastor Richard did such a great job of closing out 2023 for us as a church. It was a big month ahead for our church, like we've talked about in there. Lots of things coming up that are significant, and we'll talk more about this next week, but there's much to be praying into together. And I just invite you to be praying with us, and we'll do some things together, um, tangibly to be praying together, but my invitation would just be as our church enters a really big month, a really big season, um, be bringing it to the Lord in prayer regularly. There's, there's nothing greater we can do as we make decisions and move forward with things as a church and be a praying church, and be interceding on behalf of our community and our family. And so I invite you into that. We're also excited as the new year begins to jump back into the book of Ephesians next week. I'm sure you're like, oh man, I just I know we were in it for like 10 weeks just for the first half already, but I just can't get enough. Give me back into Ephesians. We're very excited about halfway through the book, perfectly through the first three chapters. Now it'll be time to jump into the back half, and we'll do that next week. For chapters 4 to 6 in the months to come. But before we jump back into Ephesians, I thought it would be fitting to take this first Sunday of 2024 to expand a little bit on a concept that we just dipped our toes in together on Christmas Eve. If you were with us on Christmas Eve for the service, just a beautiful evening together, we, we dipped our toes into the fourth theme of the Advent season. We dipped our toes into the idea of love, of the love of God as displayed at Christmas. And I thought it'd be fitting to take this first Sunday of 2024, not only to expand on that a little bit more, but also to ground this really significant month we have ahead of us, and the really significant year we have ahead of us as a church, but also just our own lives entering the new year and new beginnings and new starts, to really ground it in the most fundamentally important place to begin anything that we do. And that is in the person and the love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I thought we'd begin the year by talking about the love of Jesus. And so with that, I would like you to turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And it's not going to be on the screen, so I really would invite you to open there. If you have a, uh, an app on your phone, turn there. In the app, this will be a familiar passage for many of us. Maybe you already have it memorized, you don't even need to open it up. That's fair. But I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 13, 1 to 13 for us. Paul writes this. And yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but I do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. Love 
is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be still. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. I've heard it said that love is the acid test of spiritual formation. And if that's confusing or new language for you today, spiritual formation is really just the process by which we become more like Jesus. Or distilled even more through what we'll see today, the process by which we become more loving people. Because in Jesus' vision of life and what he called the kingdom of God, this thing we talk about a lot, life under God's reign and this whole new reality under him, there's nothing more important than becoming the kind of people who first receive and then give love. In another story, when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment in the whole library of scripture was, and if you've read the Bible, there's more than a few commandments. There's a lot. Jesus' answer to that question was, quote, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. A quote from Deuteronomy 6. And then he said, and the second is very similar. And what is it? Love your neighbor as yourself. A quote from Leviticus 19. In yet another story, at the end of Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' greatest teaching, his greatest sermon, Jesus has a one-sentence summary of all of its teaching. And you know what that one-sentence summary of the whole teaching of the Sermon on the Mount was? It was, be compassionate just as your Father is compassionate. And with that one-line summary at the end, Jesus is tapping into this long-standing Hebrew tradition that goes all the way back to Exodus 34 that says that the dominant character trait of the God that we worship is compassionate love. The dominant character trait of our God is compassionate love. And so the telos of the ultimate goal or pursuit of our lives as Christians, as followers of Jesus, or the telos, the pursuit of our spiritual journey, is to become people who are marked by compassionate love. People who receive and give the very love of God. But this poses some, some interesting problems. As a church in Vancouver in the year 2024, which is still taking me time to get used to, it's undeniably important to provide some definition of what we mean when we say love. Because it's really easy in our day and age to be like, love, oh yeah, I'm all about love. All about love. And then miss what we're actually talking about when we say that. And in 1 Corinthians, as we get to chapter 13, 
the Apostle Paul helpfully breaks out what this love really means. It's a culture-shaping text for Paul. Absolutely culture-shaping. And in many ways, 1 Corinthians as a letter is the most culture-shaping letter that Paul writes to the church. Who are we to be and what are we to be about as the church? 1 Corinthians is chock full of it. And Paul writes 1 Corinthians and sets the pathway for so much of our church culture, what we are to be about. And today, we, come, we land on this kind of, the kind of climax of Paul's whole writing of 1 Corinthians. He writes his whole letter about church culture, what are we to be about. And the climax, the apex of that whole letter is here in 1 Corinthians 13. The entirety of Paul's argument, his whole letter kind of crescendos right here in chapter 13. What is to be bedrock, defining characteristic that marks the culture of our church? It's simple. It's love. Compassionate love. The very same characteristic which marks the heart of the head of our church. God our Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. To be a people of love. Now this is the part of 1 Corinthians that we read. And pretty much everyone in the room, I think it's fairly safe to say, almost everyone in the room, whether you're familiar with Scripture or you have no idea today what a Corinthian even is, pretty much everyone in this room is like, yeah, I've heard this one before. Or I've at least heard sections or lines or parts of this one before. Let's be real here. We've all been to a wedding. We've probably heard this passage of Scripture read. Very commonly read at weddings. It's pulled everywhere, read all over the place. And it's so often associated with this, this kind of love, this particular way that we think about love today in a city like Vancouver. And we're all for it. We couldn't be more into love. We all want to be loved. We want to show love no matter who we are. And we want to be in love. We all desire this. But hardly any of us have seen real love. We've seen cheap substitutes for it all over the place. Cheap substitutes disguised as tolerance, disguised as sharing, disguised even as sex, or as nice feelings, or as promises, all kinds of things. But hardly any of us have seen real love. I, I, uh, there, was a, there was a day a while back I had this experience where I went for a run. And I went for a run to Trout Lake because we live close enough to Trout Lake to run there. So I was running around Trout Lake and, and I had this experience of seeing this guy who was absolutely enormous, but in the best possible way. Like, enormous as in, this man works out constantly. He's in much different shape than me. And so I'm running around Trout Lake, and I see this guy, and he's also going for a run. But he is carrying, like, big dumbbell weights while he runs. And he also had, like, leg weights strapped to him while he ran. And, and you can just see, obviously, the results of this all over his body. And I'm running, and I'm looking at this guy also going for a run, but having a very different experience than I was having. And I remember, I remember this thought came to my mind as I looked at him. I thought, I'm going to go home today, and I'm going to tell my wife I went for a run. That man's also going to go home, and who knows if he's married or what, but he's going to go home and tell people at home, I went for a run. We're describing the same thing. Or we're saying the same thing, describing very different experiences. His experience of going for a run was much different than mine, like a different universe. But so often, we're kind of 
we're saying the same thing technically, but we're describing completely different planets of existence when we're saying it. And I think we do that when we talk about love very often. Like biblical love, true love, is frankly in a different world of experience than what most of us operate in and have experienced ourselves in love on earth. First off, the love we often talk about is super vague and the word is really overused. No one really knows what love even means anymore because we've used that word so much. There's a classic understanding that our English language has one word for what so many other languages have a whole bunch of words for. So we just overuse the word love and nobody even really knows what it means anymore. It's been reduced to a feeling or to an impulse or to sensory overload. Like when you're trying to like describe how you felt about this like exquisite curry ramen dish you just ate, and you're like, mm, I, I love this. And there's no other word for it. I love this. But believe it or not, that isn't love. Not the way the Bible is talking about it, not the way that Paul is talking about it here, or Jesus talks about it. See, love actually requires definition and substance in order to be made meaningful. Otherwise, it's ambiguous and meaningless. It requires definition and substance. We need the substance of love and the definition of love to understand what love actually is. And so we look at what Jesus said in John 13, near the end of his life. And this is the same text that we looked at briefly as we gathered on Christmas Eve. Jesus said this. He said, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. This is ultimately the definition. This is the substance of Christian love. As I have loved you. The words of Jesus. See, when you love self-sacrificially and through your actions, when you love in this way, this is how we will show the world that we are followers of Jesus. This is how we will show the world what love truly is. He says they will know you by your love. They will know you by your love. Not by your picket lines, not by your politics, not by your cool Christian gatherings or tight religious adherence to rules and laws. As the first couple verses in chapter 13 here of 1 Corinthians tell us, not even by your undoubtedly impressive spiritual activity. This isn't how they will know that you are Jesus' followers, but instead by your love. By a love that reflects the same love that we've been shown by our good God. Jesus says, if you love each other, you will show the world what I'm like. You'll show the world what I've come to do. If you love each other, you'll show the world who I am. This is how much significance he places on our love. And this is what's at stake here in 1 Corinthians 13. It's why it's the climax of Paul's whole letter on church culture. This is why it seems like Paul's actually quite worked up as he writes 1 Corinthians 13. We think of it as this really beautiful, peaceful wedding text. But Paul's quite worked up. If you read the first few verses, he's almost angry as he writes this. This is hugely important for him. Everything's been building to a crescendo for him right here in chapter 13 because the stakes are enormous. The stakes are massive because by our love and by our love alone, we show the world who Jesus is. The stakes are enormous. And so Paul's building up and getting worked up here as he writes this. Listen to the first three verses. 
If I speak in tongues of men or of angels, but I don't have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, I have a faith that can move mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. It's harsh, harsh language. If I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I might boast, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. And we so often think, and I as a pastor can really, really easily slip into this way of thinking, that by all of these things that we do in the name of Jesus, maybe even undoubtedly impressive things that we do in Jesus' name, it's clear evidence of the work, the impressive work of God in us. Look at the things that I'm doing. And Paul's like, quite frankly, you're misled. It's not about the impressive things that you do in Jesus' name. It's not about the spiritual gifts that you get the privilege of exercising in the church. It's not about your performance or adherence. But tell us the ultimate purpose and goal of the Christian life is to become a people of love. Love is the acid test of our spiritual formation. This is how we make Jesus known. Church, this is how we will make Jesus known in the neighborhood of Mount Pleasant and beyond. By our love. Becoming a people of love. And it seems that this church in Corinth Paul's writing to had a bit of a misunderstanding. Well, you know, if we have a great church, there's spiritual power that's very clearly evident here. If we speak in tongues, I mean, how can you argue with that? We're speaking in tongues. If there's great music, there's great communion feasts. We did it. We did it. We're showing the world what Jesus is like. We're spiritual. And frankly, this is a warning to us. Paul tells us this is how it's going down in Corinth, and the reality is that he's teaching that it gained them nothing. It gained them nothing. It's a harsh word. And he actually goes even further. Paul uses a bunch of hyperbole to hammer this point home. He says, if you speak in tongues, and tongues is the gift of the Spirit that's so often overemphasized and it's important in the church. It's a beautiful and important gift, but it's the one that's so often throughout church history been overemphasized and it's important. Because let's be honest, it's a visible, obviously spiritual, supernatural gift. And it usually comes without any guardrails. So it's been overused and abused in church history, but it's always, it's very often been overemphasized in its significance. And Paul says, you can have it. You can practice this impressive, powerful, spiritual gift that you all seem to want. Goodness, you can have the gift of both earthly tongues and heavenly tongues. Both, you can have it all. You can speak such beautiful and impressive words, but without love, it's useless. It reminds me of certain times when my daughter will do something bad or like disobedient that she knows full well is disobedient, like she'll throw a ball at my wife's face or something. Um, just a, an example pulled from this week. Uh, and, and I'll get mad at her, I'll pull her aside, I'll discipline her. And, and part of that is like, you need, you need to go apologize. You need to go say sorry. And so then Wesley will walk over to my wife and most of the time it's very sincere and you can tell she's learned something, but sometimes parents will get this. Sometimes they're just going through the motions because it's what you want them to do, and they want to carry on with their day. So she'll go up to my wife, and she'll say, sorry, Mom. And you know in those moments, it's like, I know she's not actually sorry for throwing the ball right now. Maybe one day we'll get there. Maybe one day there will be remorse. 
She's not actually sorry for it now. I'm trying to teach her obedience and right behavior. But in most ways, her apology, I'm sorry for throwing the ball at your face, mom, just feels like words. It's not there in the heart. It just feels like words. But words is all we're going to get right now. And Paul's kind of like in a similar way. You can speak in, in tongues of men and angels. You can have it all. You can practice these beautiful words. And without love, it's just words. It's empty. It's void. Without love, it's just words. It's just noise. And then Paul carries on the hyperbole. He, he lists three other forms of what's called charismata, or like the powerful supernatural gifts of the Spirit. And he lumps together three of the most powerful spiritual gifts that someone can possess. And he goes, if I had all three of them, if I had all of them, not even just one, not even just one of these powerful supernatural gifts, if I had all three of them, I've got all three, where I understood the things of God, I spoke the word of God, I understood God's word and knew what to do with it, how to apply it, how to teach it, and I have faith, not just any faith, but the kind of faith that can do mighty, mighty things in Jesus' name. Faith that can heal, faith that can save, faith that can move mountains. And it's a bit of hyperbole because we know the Spirit administers different gifts to different people. But Paul goes, even if I had all of them, I had all of these things, I had them all, but at the same time I failed to love, then it's nothing in the sight of God. You can serve, you can lead, you can be the best pastor, author, leader, worship leader, best person in your job on the face of the earth. And if you do not have love in the Christian life, it amounts to nothing. And then one more hyperbole, just to hit the point home a little further. He says, if I give all that I have, all I possess to the poor, all of it, and I give my body over to hardship. Some translations translate this word as actual martyrdom, like death, giving my whole life over for another, that I might boast. But I don't have love. I gain nothing. Before God in eternity, it gains nothing. And if that's true, friends, if giving away your very life and all of your possessions for God without doing it out of love for the other means nothing, if giving away 100% of your money and what you possess to God without love gains nothing, then imagine what giving away the 10% tithe we usually talk about for God without love means. I think it's fairly obvious where this is going. I think you understand what Paul's saying with this. And I think we're grasping that maybe this beautiful wedding text that's so often used on the happiest day of people's lives actually came with it, as Paul wrote it, with some frustration, with some anger, with some, we need to get this. This is incredibly important. It's a stern warning for any church in the first century or in the 21st century. It's a stern warning that with anything other than love for God and for others as the core priority of how and why we gather as a church or exercise gifts or practice generosity or serve in ministries or treat your spouse, treat your neighbors, disciple the next generation. Doing any of those things without love being the primary motivator and priority for how and why we do them is like a loud gong or clanging cymbal. If I walked up to each of you today, and just clang some cymbals as loud as I could in your ears, I think you'd ask me to leave and never return, and that would be fair. That would be a fair response. It's obnoxious. It's loud. It is unpleasant. I think of it kind of like having paint 
and having a blank canvas. But with that, just taking buckets of paint and chucking buckets of paint onto a blank canvas. Haphazard, no rhyme or reason, just chucking buckets of paint onto a blank canvas. And not in like a cool abstract art kind of way, just mess. Just absolute mess. What you end up with, in all the ways that matter, is a mess that's very loud and obnoxious. But to carry the metaphor along with, with love for God and love for others as the core energy and priority behind all that we do as a church and as individuals, the core priority of, above any other metrics of success that we might hold in our hearts. As we do it in that way, all those things as they're added and practiced in our lives, as we add them to our lives and practice them, knowledge and wisdom, faith and generosity, worship in the Spirit, exercising the gifts of the Spirit, all of these things become individual pieces in the grand symphony of the beautiful bride of Christ, which is the church. Each of these things, when practiced in and for love, become a color not just chucked up on the blank canvas, but intricately woven and painted with precision and beauty to bring about a work of art in the name and power of Jesus. See, God had gifted this church in Corinth. He'd endowed them with his presence, endowed them with his power and his gifts. And they were to use all of these endowments to show what God was like to the world. And this is likewise just the same our call as a church. And the only way that this is done, the only way we do this, is in the way of love. So the question is big. How do we move forward in love? What does it look like? How do we move forward in love? Well, Paul defines it. Love is not some abstract concept. It's not just some feeling. Paul gives it concrete definition. He defines it. Here it is. And I'm going to read this again. I'm going to read it from the New Living Translations to change it up. Because I like how they word some things. Paul writes this. He says, love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It doesn't rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. It's a powerful picture. It's a powerful definition. It's important to know the context for this incredible picture of love is not, as we often mistake it, marriage. Not that we can't apply it to marriage, but that's not the context for this picture of love. It's not something we can listen to and just go, well, you know, when I'm married one day, I'll love like this. Or even like, yeah, I could probably be a better husband or wife. You know, I'll try to take these on. It's actually not the context for this picture of love. The context is Christian community. It's the church. It's the way that we're called to move through the universe as followers of Jesus. It's to be our very way of life and life abundant as Jesus follows. Love is the very behavior of the Christian. It is the action of the Christian. And anything done in the power of God, with the presence of God, in the name of God, for the glory of God, by the spiritual gifting of God, must be done in this way. It must be done in love. It must be done with patience and kindness. See, it's interesting with that, with that twofold definition, patience and kindness. Love is both passive and active. 
I was a child of the 90s, so I grew up with a band called DC Talk. And I'm not gonna ask the room who jammed to DC Talk because it would just depress me, because probably no one. But DC Talk had this classic song, one of their most famous, it was called Love is a Verb. Maybe you've heard it. But love was spelled L-U-V, just so you know that it was the cool kind of love. You know, love is a verb. And the famous emphasis in DC Talk's song, Love is a Verb, was that love is not this abstract thing that you say or feel, but love is an action word. It's what you do, right? Love is a verb. And this is such an important truth to hold on to, so the thank you, DC Talk, much appreciated. But there's also a little bit of pushback being given here by Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Paul pushes back on that totality just a little bit here. Because he makes a really important emphasis that love is both patient and kind. That there's an active no-doubt element to love, but also a passive element to love. I'll explain. The, the King James Version of the Bible, which isn't a version that I usually quote, but in this case I think it's a really beautiful translation of this word, patient. The King James translates patient as, it says, love suffereth long. Love suffereth long. And this idea of long-suffering... I think is a word that we don't ever use today or hear today because with our attention spans, we don't really know what it means to suffer anything longer than like 12 seconds. But this idea of long suffering, it's really this kind of passive trait of love. Love is passive in that it suffers long with people. People who bug you. People who get on your nerves. People that just won't get it. People that see things and therefore do things very differently than you are used to or frankly understand. Love suffers long with people. And on the other hand, love is a verb. Love pursues active goodness and kindness. It isn't just like, I don't care about you, you do whatever you want. I don't care. No, love actively pursues kindness and goodness. So love is both passive in that it suffers long with people, but active in that it shows kindness and goodness. A lot of the times we're patient with people, but I feel like we're patient in a way that's like, I'm not gonna give you anything because anytime I give you anything, you squander it. Or we're actively kind to people, but the second they cross us, it's like, I'm done with you. Love suffereth long and is kind. It's both carried in beautiful, beautiful tension together. We so clearly see both sides of this love in the love that Jesus shows towards us. See, God withholds his wrath towards us, wrath that we deserve, in patience. He suffers long with us. He's patient with us in our rebellion. He's patient with us in our ignorance. As we, like sheep, go astray and turn to our own way, he's thankfully far more patient with us than we so often are with one another. He's thankfully far more patient with me than I so often am with my kids. But he also comes after us. He suffers along with us, but he also comes after us. His love is kind in that he's actively pursuing you. While we were enemies of him in our contempt for him, he came for us at Christmas. He died for us at Easter. The love of God is both patient and kind, long-suffering and actively pursuing and we are to be a reflection of that love to one another and to our world. This is how they will know who our God is. 
And then Paul gives a bit of a quick list of things that love is not. It's not envious, it's not proud, it's not rude, it's not demanding of our own way, it's not easily angered, it keeps no record of being wrong, it's not content with injustice. When you're in Christian community and you're jealous of someone else, you're not acting in love. If you're in Christian community and you're boasting about how smart or accomplished or privileged you are, you're not acting in love. If you're in Christian community and you won't be part of something unless it's exactly how you want it to be, you're not acting in love. If you're in Christian community and you're always on edge, always contrarian and difficult, grumpy or negative, always needing to play the devil's advocate, why do we want to advocate for the devil anyway? I don't understand that. But seriously, I can be this person. I say all these things as I can so easily be this person. But guess what? You're not acting in love. If you're in Christian community and you're always keeping a list of people who wronged you or who burned you, and in self-preservation you're not going to trust anyone anymore, you're not acting in love. If you're in Christian community and you secretly get excited when someone else fails, or they don't have the numbers or success that you have. You're not acting in love. The list goes on and on and on. You're not showing the world what God is like. Even if people think you're the most holy person who's ever set foot in Mount Pleasant. Without love, it is nothing. And this may seem like a harsh word. Like I've taken this beautiful wedding text and turned it into something to beat us over the head with today. But not only can I assure you that's not what my intent is nor what I'm doing here. It's also not what Paul's doing here. Because as Paul writes, he says, love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they'll be still. Where there's knowledge, it will pass away. Some more things to emphasize that point. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. With all of this and all the stuff in between those two verses, what's Paul saying in all this? It's not just a scathing critique of the Corinthians and by extension us. Paul's saying at the very end of this love chapter, all of this is so important for a reason. It's so important because love is the only force with a future. Love is the only force with a future. Love is the only thing that will last. Everything else we've talked about, all this spiritually impressive stuff that you do, everything else we've talked about will pass away. Everything else will be done away with. Frankly, everything that you in your mind do for God, or in the name of God, or with the gifting of God, actually will cease. But love will endure. Love is the language of heaven, the language of eternity. It is the way that we live out Jesus' prayer on earth as it is in heaven. There will be no tongues in heaven. We'll all speak one language together. There will be no need. There will be no prophecy in heaven because there will be no need for prophecy in heaven. There will be no words of knowledge in heaven because you will know perfectly. Paul says you see in a mirror dimly now, but then you'll fully know. There will be no need for words of knowledge. There's no need for faith in heaven because in heaven we will truly see. There's no need for hope in heaven because in heaven all things will be made right. All things will be as they were made to be. So all of these things will pass away. All these things will cease, but one thing remains. It's love. Love is how followers of Jesus show that the kingdom of God is breaking into our world. 
Love is how we put on display that the kingdom of God is breaking into Vancouver. Love is what is shown to us by Jesus Christ on the cross. Love is a person. Love has a name. It is the person of Jesus. Love is the very nature of the God that we worship and serve. It's why, we, it's why love is what will remain, because God is love. And he is eternal. And as we live in step with his spirit, and each day in obedience allow him to form us and make us, in each moment, in each decision, in each relationship, in each gathering as a church, our lives and our love will begin to look more and more and more like patience, kindness, selflessness, contentment, peace, sacrifice, grace. It's why love is the acid test of spiritual formation. Because if we are formed into people of love, we are formed into Christ-likeness. We are formed into that which will remain when all else has passed away. We are formed into people of love. So I want to close with this. And Sharon, I invite you to come up and, and, and you, you can play behind me. Like, I want to close with this. It's a little practice. But it's often said that this paragraph in 1 Corinthians 13 is one of the most beautiful and important depictions of Jesus and his ministry. I don't know if we've ever thought about it that way. One of the most important and beautiful depictions of Jesus, so much so that we can actually substitute his name into this text when the noun love is read. And in doing so, we can understand who Jesus is in a personal way. So doing that would look kind of like this. I'll read it for us. It would look like Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. He does not envy. He does not boast. He's not proud. He does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He's not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Jesus does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. He always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Jesus never fails. And that's beautiful and powerful. Allows us to know our Savior in an incredibly profound way. But there's also another, another part to that, which is that if spiritual formation is becoming like Jesus and the power and presence of his Spirit becoming like him, being united with him, the reality is that we should be able to enter our names in for this as well. As we become like Jesus, we're united with him by his spirit. The reality is we're united with him. And so we should be able to put our name in here as well. And that is where it gets a little bit awkward. If you're anything like me, it gets very awkward. I sit here and I start to read and I go, Brad is patient. Brad is kind. He does not envy, he does not boast, he is not proud. And at a certain point, it's hard to even continue. Because honestly, I feel so very far from this reality. But this is what we're called to. So I want to invite you to take a minute, if you have the text open with you. Take a minute, we're going to respond in song. Place your name in here. I'm going to read it solely for us, just as a conclusion, and then we'll respond together. As I read it, as I say love, imagine your name placed in here. 
and allow the Spirit of God to bring to life where our love is lacking, where there's still work to do in our pursuit of being a people of love, what that looks like in our world. So I'm going to read it slowly, and where love is present, imagine your name in here. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we simply pray, do this in us. Come, Holy Spirit, do this work in us. Form us, mold us, shape us into a people of love. Lord, begin today. We want to be like you, Jesus. We want to show this world, we want to show Mount Pleasant what you are like. So come do a work in us in 2024. Thank you.